Hey there, it's Gary Parrish. It's Wednesday, April 25th, 2018. Welcome back to the Ion College Basketball Podcast. Matt Norlander is here with me, and earlier today, the Commissioner on College Basketball, led by former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, announced their recommendations to, in essence, help fix the sport of college basketball. Among other things, they want the one-and-done rule gone. They want independent investigations into alleged rules violations. They want harsher penalties for cheaters. They want players to be allowed to return to college and play if they want, if they enter an NBA draft and then go unselected. There are some good ideas in there, even a skeptic like I can admit, but as expected, they completely avoided the central issue, which is amateurism. And so they might be improving the sport slightly, but they're certainly not fixing anything. That's my opinion, at least, and I'm going to get into it more specifically momentarily. But first, Norlander, I'll open things up to you. What did you make of the announcement from the Commission on College Basketball this a.m.? I made that it was too early, by the way. This thing got going well, at 8 in the morning. Like, yeah, like you cannot start at 7 a.m. Central, a press conference. That's rough stuff. Writer problems, there's no doubt about it, but what are we doing? <laughs> like, What are we doing with an 8 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Central, 5 a.m. Pacific uh, whole reveal with this thing? That was... Um, Bizarre. But anyway, um, I got a lot of takeaways, but I'm going to be really abbreviated here just because I think we could honestly talk about this uh, perhaps way longer than than we need to. Um, But in in listening to Condoleezza Rice explain the commission's proposals, she started off by saying um, her quote was talking to the stakeholders. At times it was like talking to a circular firing squad. It was always somebody else's fault. And what I thought was interesting was when you got to so much of what she was explaining in the commission's findings and its report to the NCAA, uh, her statement was a bit ironic because the NCAA and the commission, which are not the same thing here, the NCAA has hired this commission, um, which is filled by, you know, former players and obviously administrators and, and people affiliated with powerful universities and all that stuff. So there, there's a little bit of the crossing of the streams there, but it, 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 I guess it became most apparent, even though this was always, um, I guess, known, that the NCAA is incapable of, of fixing its own house here. It needs the NBA to come over to the other side of the aisle and help fix things. It needs the shoe companies to be a little bit more transparent. And by the way, will the NCAA also opt to be more transparent itself? That remains to be seen. It suggested having uh, an independent investigation arm, an enforcement arm, not just the NCAA using a peer review model to now um, punish and adjudicate uh, cases going forward. And by the way, all of this stuff was is has been proposed to the NCAA with the idea that a lot of these proposals will go into enactment like come August when this stuff will be voted on by the Board of Governors there. But you can't escape the central problem with the NCAA in that so many of the reasons why it's in this situation to begin with, men's college basketball, is because entities, people, shady actors, however you want to call it, whatever you want to call them, they affect the sport and don't work within the confines and the infrastructure of the NCAA. So it's impossible for the NCAA to govern all that stuff. And so almost by necessity, it needs to ask other major corporations uh, and, and industry leaders to help fix their own problems 
we'll see how much that does happen and if it will happen, Parrish. But that was the one stark thing with me. Like, I understand people want to kill the NCAA, kill the commission. This is a huge waste of time. I actually don't think it was a waste of time. I actually think that some of this stuff here makes a lot of sense. And in talking with some coaches, they, they would agree with this while having issues with other things. But the central problem that started this whole thing was an FBI investigation about players getting bought and getting moved to schools here, there, and and otherwise. And this commission was catalyzed by that action. And what we are seeing is a lot of workaround of other problems worth addressing. But the core issue, the central problem, the thing that really has made so much of what's become a mega issue perish in this, uh, it was not addressed by this commission. And I think it is fair to say because of that, at this stage, um, you can qualify Wednesday's reveal as disappointing. It's, and this is what I wrote column over at CBS Sports that'll be posted later today. It's like the Commission on College Basketball forgot why the Commission of College Basketball on College Basketball was created in the first place. It is a direct byproduct of an FBI investigation um, uncovering money deals in a variety of ways. Think about it. Everybody who worked for a Division I university who has lost their job because of this FBI investigation, which again sparked the Commission on College Basketball, every single person that has lost their job, it was, it was because of a situation involving money. Rick Patino and most of his staff at Louisville fired. Why? Because Adidas allegedly arranged a six-figure payment to the family of a five-star prospect in exchange for his enrollment with the Louisville coaching staff's knowledge. Auburn's Chuck Person, USC's Tony Bland, Oklahoma State's Lamont Evans, all fired. Why? Because they allegedly accepted money to funnel prospects to financial advisors. Arizona's Book Richardson fired. Why? Because he allegedly paid a recruit. Again, every employee of a Division One Division One University who has been fired as a result of the FBI investigation, which prompted the Commission on College Basketball, was fired because of a money deal. Because somebody was paying somebody else to gain influence over a player. And yet, there's not a single thing that they did today that cleans up that black market. And so, I think you and I are on similar pages here. There are some recommendations that I do think improve the sport of college basketball. But the reason this was deemed necessary, this commission, was because of that FBI investigation and what it showed the world. And there is nothing that Condoleezza Rice announced to this morning that, that even attempts to try to fix the stuff that's in that FBI investigation, which means that the whole thing is, like you said, disappointing. Not not surprising because we've known for a while that they weren't going to deal with amateurism. But if you're not going to deal with amateurism and, and, and try to do away with the black market that has always existed and still does today, you're not fixing anything. You're just uh, putting on a big show that might improve some things but fixes nothing. Parrish, in listening to Rice speak, and she's obviously um... – tremendously smart and took this issue very seriously um i couldn't help but i guess look at the the commission members behind her and and just what obviously comes to mind is criticisms that were there once the commission was announced and the and the members on this committee were detailed and that's 
just just the fact that while they did a lot of their diligence here, they didn't do enough of it. And it was a problem from the start that you didn't have more people that work in this world on a daily basis. By the way, acknowledging the fact that that is a tough line to straddle there. If you want to get people on this commission that are you know, actively employed in other spots, it's almost a non-starter. You need to get people that were recently involved in it or potentially people who work at shoe companies and have the capacity to do that to really – really brings so much of the reality of of the world of college basketball and college recruiting and how these operations between major schools and shoe companies, how they really work. That was absent there. And so when you did not have that from the start, Parrish, I think that's why this was an inevitability because those kinds of people are going to bring to the table actual real problems and potential solutions that deal with the amateurism model. And if you're not even going to start there, then how could you possibly wind up ending where you should be winding up? I think, would you agree? I mean, this, I don't want to say it was doomed from the start because I don't think this thing was doomed, but the central driving force for this thing is still without any real resolution. And I think that's why we are where we are because it was comprised of 12 people who know what they're talking about, but they don't know the business of college basketball as intimately as so, so many others who could have been put on the committee. I'm with you in the sense that I don't think it was doomed from the start, but it's doomed from the moment that amateurism is not on the table. Like, basically, they started from a place of examine the one-and-done rule, then make a recommendation. Examine the relationship between student athletes and agents and then make a recommendation. Examine the process of players entering the NBA draft without, um, you know, without compromising their amateurism and then going unselected and then coming back to school and playing. Examine that and then make a recommendation. But don't get into players being compensated from outside uh, parties. Or universities. Don't get into players being compensated at fair market value. Don't get into the subject of amateurism because we're not going there. And once that's the starting point, then I don't care if you put Condoleezza Rice uh, in charge of it or Barack Obama in charge of it or George Bush in charge of it or whoever you think these smart leaders of the world have been. It will not matter. They cannot accomplish what it is the task force, for lack of a better, I'll just call it what it is, the commission on college basketball, it cannot accomplish what it was created um, to accomplish, which is to fix, the, identify the problems in college basketball and then fix them. Because the problem in college basketball is the black market that has forever been there. And if you're not allowed to try to address it, you're just, you're, you're, you're dancing around the, the, the central issue and therefore you you don't really get anywhere. Yeah, and it feels a bit to me like the the tone in the committee's report and the commission's report um, stems a lot from a lot of the talking points and the general demeanor that we've heard from Mark Emmert over the years. Um, this is a man who has no real interest in truly changing the fundamentals of the NCAA model. And as the president of the NCAA, you know what? He's paid extremely handsomely to, to step in line with that while – allowing for incremental small changes uh, in the way that the NCAA operates from here to there overall. But I, I just – I guess I have an issue with the fact that the the commission's report, you know, introduces some really dramatic language at the start of it that I – 
melodramatic, if anything. I mean, I don't find the sport to be in, in severe crisis the way that the commission was saying. Um, it said, in brief, it is the overwhelming assessment of the commission. The state of men's college basketball is deeply troubled. The levels of corruption and deception are now at a point that they threaten the very survival of the college game as we know it. And here's the thing. I mean, I've spoken with a few coaches for a story that will go up later, a couple coaches on, on record, some off record, and they, were, they basically said, you know what, if you went back 10, 20, 30 years ago and did something like this, like it, would have been, it would have seemed so, so much worse than it is right now. So a lot of this is kind of over the top, and that's to be fair. But if you still want to say, yeah, but just because it's better now doesn't mean it's all the way better, I get that in general. But I, I, I was hoping for a little bit more here. I mean, I didn't go into this completely naive thinking that we're going to get something amazing here. But uh, but they seem to, in my eyes, perish. Uh, the commission seems to have um, really gone a little bit of both here. Like, okay, you didn't quite give us what we wanted, but I won't say it was a waste of time because there were still other things that were put on the table there. Things, by the way, that – and we're going to get to these proposals. Parrish is going to line them up um, one by one, and we're going to get into them. I uh, want to just remind listeners, one, you know, we don't know – these are just proposals. We don't know what will go into action um, or when, but I can tell you that some of this stuff is going to be in effect in the NCAA rulebook before the end of the year because there has been a lot of public – sentiment from Emmert and others, NCAA presence, about getting as much change made possible. I would warn uh, NCAA uh, powers that be, though, that, that doing that could be effective. It could. But think about the unintended consequences, and getting things enacted as quickly as possible can sometimes wind up backfiring in the long run. I guess I would bottom line it this way, then we'll move on to some of the specific recommendations. The way I close my column is um, by basically saying this is where I always figured we would be because when somebody connected to the NCAA or some university president says, you know, we need to take a serious look at the sport of college basketball to try to clean it up, they don't really mean that they're willing to do whatever they have to do to clean it up because what they have to do in order to actually eliminate this black market is relinquish power and relinquish millions and millions of dollars. You know, they're fearful that if you allow the Olympic model, the way I have detailed a million times on this podcast and and in columns, so I won't go through it again step by step by step, but if you allow the Olympic model to exist, they're fearful that a booster who owns a car dealership who used to give money straight to the university now gives it straight to a player or Nike that used to give, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars straight to a university now gives some of that to the university, but some of it to players. They don't want to relinquish the control of, they don't want to relinquish the the power and they don't want to relinquish the control of the money. And, and so that, but that is the only real way to, to fix this black market. And and so, you know, until honestly, I think uh, the legal system requires them Mm -hmm. to do something, uh, they won't because going where I suggest they ought to go is not a place greedy people are ever willing to go. And so it is what it is. And players will be bought next summer and the summer after that and the summer after that. This doesn't really clean up college basketball. It just might slightly improve it in certain ways. Let's go through some of the recommendations. 
Uh, first, I think the biggest headline is is the one and done rule. Kind of Lisa Rice announced that. Uh, obviously, there's nothing they can do about it, but they will encourage um, Adam Silver and the Players Association to try to do away with the one and done rule, um, allowing high school players to enter the NBA draft um, directly um, upon graduation if they if they choose. And they are not recommending the baseball model which I think is smart because it just creates more problems. Uh, so essentially, we'll go back to where we were pre-Kevin Durant and Greg Oden, which is you want to go out of high school? Go. You want to go after your freshman year? Go. You want to go after your sophomore year? Go. Go after your junior year? Go. And I, I'm actually for this, um, but not for the same reasons they seem to be for it. They think it cleans up college basketball. The point I've always made is the recruit most directly tied to the FBI investigation is Brian Bowen, who was not a one and done player. Um, you know, he, he, he would have been going to, co- I mean, who wasn't a straight out of high school player. So, so it wouldn't be what you call, call a one and done player. If he were allowed to go to the NBA draft straight out of high school, he would not have done that. So it doesn't really clean up anything. Um, so I'm not for it for that reason. I'm just for it because I think it's the right thing to do. I, I think that, you know, somebody who is uniquely talented, who wants to try to, be in the play in the NBA, um, and and chooses to enter that draft, um, should be allowed to do that. And if NBA franchises don't want eighteen year old, don't take them. And um, you know, if, if some kid makes a bad decision, kids all over this country every day make bad decisions. Uh, I'm you know I'll worry about my kids. Um, everybody else can worry about theirs. And if you really are about saving children from making bad decisions, go volunteer with the Boys and Girls Club. Don't worry about basketball players. So I'm for it for those reasons. Just I think it's the right thing to do. Others are for it because they think it cleans up the sport. Where are you at on that? I don't think it cleans up the sport necessarily. I mean, like in terms of across the board, I don't. I don't think so. There's always going to be you're you're just kind of moving the measuring stick down just a little bit there um, because the the prospects that would have fallen into the, from here to here, well now you toss them out and then just go whoop. Okay, so these are the guys now that are going to play in college because they're not quite good enough to go to the NBA. Now, how are we going to be able to sort out who's going where, who can we steer where? I think that's still going to happen. You're still going to take – there's still going to be bidding wars on many of the best available prospects that are heading into college. What I do think today signified um, – in talking with Mike Bray earlier today, the coach at Notre Dame, um, he was adamant about the fact that you know th- this commission would not have come out the way that it did – in imploring shoe companies and the NBA the way that it did unless it had had serious and significant conversations and sit-downs with Adam Silver and the NBA Players Association and Kevin Plank and Under Armour um, and Phil Knight at Nike and all these – like th- those conversations have been had. So this didn't th- – these suggestions from the commission are not coming out of nowhere, obviously. So what I, in terms of the one-and-done purely parish – I think because this hit a formal stage today with this report coming out and an acknowledgement that the one-and-done rule on behalf of the NBA has wound up hurting college basketball to a degree, it's not the NBA's problem necessarily that it has to deal with, but because Adam Silver has been outspoken about it, I think this was the final thing that leads to this rule being put back in place um, as quickly as possible. The one major hurdle is that the NBA Players Association 
because it has players in it who are 34, 36, 38, 33 years old and don't exactly want to get kicked out of their career before they're ready to go. They don't want uh, young talent coming in a year before they actually have to. That's the only hurdle here. I do think we're going to get to a point where this rule comes back into place, and this was just kind of a formal um, allowing of that to happen and just saying from the college side, hey, this is us saying we should really abolish this. It's kind of in a way, though, Parrish, I look at this, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's great for the commission to say that. Not the NCAA's problem, not their issue to fix. It's all on the NBA, but cool that you brought it up nonetheless. To me, more than anything, that signified that they've had serious and significant conversations with Silver and his representatives about moving this along as fast as possible. Uh, Another recommendation was that undrafted players who haven't compromised their amateur status um, can, if they choose to, return to school and play college basketball, and they're not eligible to play professional basketball um, I guess here in the United States, at least, until the subsequent draft. In other words, um, player X at school Y declares for the NBA draft without an, without an agent. He um, is not picked. He thought he was going to be the 48th pick. He's not picked at all. He can't get a free agent deal uh, or not one to his liking. And so he says, you know what? Uh, I'll just go back to school. And um, I'll play college basketball again, and then we'll, we'll try this again next year. That person would be allowed to do it. I think that's a, a solid recommendation, if only because I don't really see a downside to it. Um, but how many kids are going to want to go back to school? Like you're so, you're so far removed from school at that point mentally and in, in terms of the calendar that you know who, who wants to go back to school? And beyond that, how many players truly – are going to go all the way through draft night without an agent. Um, you, you, know, you, you might go through the deadline to withdraw from the draft without an agent. Lots of, lots of players do that. But if you go through the deadline, it, it's almost uh, dumb not to secure representation if you're really trying to, to be picked. So I think it's a rule that works. Like in, in the sense that I'm okay with it. I don't really see the downside. I just don't see too many players choosing to take advantage of it. This has coaches fired up um, and seeing major downsides. Now, obviously, they could be seeing the worst-case scenarios here playing out for them. Um, let me lay this out for you, Paris. So, one, I think either the rule for – and we're going to get to the agent representation here in a second, but um, either – like, these things should coincide. Like, a players will be able to have actual agent representation at this point. Now, whether they are – the money situation has to be figured out in general. But but short of that, then the NCAA needs to allow for some sort of, like, stock agent representation for these players. You cannot be having these guys go through two months of this stuff without official representation. One, because it's not smart. And two, you're just asking for them to break the rules in general. Um, coaches are reticent about this for the obvious reasons. Um You have players who are so good at the college level, like if you're declaring for the draft, a lot of the times you're a really high-level college player. I mean, it's seldom where you got a a nobody that's that's really going. But a lot of those players aren't good enough to be drafted. Obviously, we've got 
you know, 210 guys putting their name in and 190 of them are going to get picked. Like, inevitably, a lot of these dudes putting their name in are going to go back to school long before the draft uh, night arrives and all that stuff. But in this situation, you could have some guys. I mean, let's just put Omari Spellman out there as an example, who obviously won't apply to this because this rule won't be in effect this year or anything like that. But let's say Omari Spellman just doesn't get drafted, which wouldn't happen. But let's just use him as a hypothetical. Well, Omari Spellman is good enough to be like a top 20 player in college basketball, maybe a top 10 player in college basketball next season. But by that point, Villanova, what is Jay Wright supposed to do? Is he supposed to just sit around and wait on Omari Spellman's decision? And if he does that... Is that what's best for his roster and his program as summer school starts by the time the draft gets rolling around? What are we really even doing here? And by doing this, here's an unintended consequence. And maybe it makes it more interesting for our jobs, Parrish. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. But this this brings another free agency period where it extends. Like the, the fifth-year grad transfer right now, you're seeing a lot of commitments um, that are happening in this month right now where players who were at one school are going to go play college basketball for another year without having to sit. They're going to go to another place, okay? This would basically take that and push it into July. And so what you're doing there is you're taking really talented college basketball players who are just either not quite on the cusp of being drafted or just being top 120 prospects, something like that, and then you're saying, okay, July 7th comes, you can go on back to school. Oh, where you played? Is the roster now filled or is it not? And if it is if it is filled, what you're going to have, and this would be fascinating, it would be chaotic, but I think it would be way intriguing. It would also bring more relevance to offseason top 25 and ones because you'd be updating them more frequently. You might have, in fact, you would have, I know this would happen, you'd have top 20 programs that would be stashing an open roster spot knowing that the numbers are going to provide you the opportunity for these guys to come back. And if they want to leave, you might legitimately have like a starting spot on your roster that's not accounted for until the middle of July. So I don't know if you want to call that a downside. It is an unintended consequence of all this, and this is under the idea of player freedom, which is great. The coaches hate it because it it brings so much more uncertainty to their roster situation. They think that it's going to basically lead to, to more turmoil within their own situations and guys are already getting fired at a rate that's way too frequent at this point as is that's why they're not that's why they're not so keen on it parish <laughs> just about everything coaches are not keen on is because of the way it affects them even if it is a positive for the player i don't think there's any scenario where you could argue intelligently that it's not a positive for the player like if a player could say you know what I, i'm going to enter the nba draft you know because i think i'm going to get picked like these these like we detailed on the last podcast at least recent history shows not many of these people make bad decisions. Like there's not too many people who stay in the draft um, and are misguided. Like they're, you know, they, the, the ones who should have withdrawn last year at the deadline because it was clear, Hey, you're not going to be picked. Um, most of them got out of the draft and some of them stayed in and, and I'm sure some of them were misguided, but not a large number. And some of them are just done with college. They're just done. Like, if I don't get picked, I don't get picked. I'll go play overseas. I'll go to the G League. I'm just done with college. So, if, but if, if in, the, in the scenario where a guy goes, oh, wow, I didn't get picked. My life's over. Well, maybe your life's not actually over. If you want to go back to school, you can undo this temporary bad decision. Like, I think that's a positive for the, for the student athlete if he wants to take advantage of it. And my guess is, though, it would bring uncertainty to – 
programs around the country and make coaches have to be a little more thoughtful as they're accepting commitments from players because you don't want to you know, be be filled to your scholarship limit if you've got a player who actually goes unselected and then wants to return. But by the way, you would figure that out. Like if if a, if I if your starting power forward entered the draft, didn't get picked, and said, "Coach, I want to come back to school," you'd figure that out. Somebody would just have to lose their scholarship for a year. They would always figure that out. So I don't really think that's that big of a problem. But you know, I, I think coaches would, um, you know, they they might say oh, it's going to make our jobs tougher and it's going to lead to bad decisions. But let's just say if you're Chris Mullen, what if Shamari Pons, what if the rule's in place now, Shamari Pons um, stays in the draft and then doesn't get picked, all of which is possible. You know, he could stay in the draft and not get picked. You think Chris Mullen would be, like really think it's a pain in the ass if he decided, hey, coach, I want to come back to school? You, you immediately re-enrolled the preseason you know, possible Big East player of the year. Like, you think Chris Mullen would really be upset about that? So I, I, what I find with most coaches, not all, not all, but the ones who would complain about something like this is that they want to limit they're, – they're the same ones that don't want to lift transfer restrictions. They're the same ones that want to put uh, restrictions on, 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 a, on a kid when he wants to leave a program. Well, you, you can go to these schools but not these schools because they're on our schedule. The guys who complain about this recommendation are the same guys that complain about those things. And I think they're, uh, you know, and I'm sure some of these guys are my friends, but I would I would call them selfish. Like I'm always for the student athlete. And I think that recommendation would be good for the student athlete. It would be really good for the student athlete. And uh, the idea of uh, even potentially just a few really good players uh, having to decide whether they were going to go back to where they were at or not um, is intriguing. And then just a real quick thought, a bonus thought on this that wasn't addressed by this at all today is this this idea, which is fine, and the calendars don't match up with the sports, so that's why this doesn't really line up, but it eliminates any sort of possibility about um, – like, it'd be kind of cool if a player could get called up. Like, uh, Wetzel had a column about this like a month ago. There was this player at Harvard or somewhere, and he got called up to the Boston Bruins, and he, like, scored two goals in his debut, and he was in college. He, like, his college career ended, like, three days prior. Then, boom, immediately called right up to play for the Bruins. I thought that was a really cool thing. This would eliminate any sort of possibility of having a player say he's in college, and I get why the NCAA wouldn't want to do that, but if you had this rule in place, you try and go to the draft, and it doesn't necessarily work out, you don't get drafted, um, and then you go back to school, uh, you are not eligible until next year's draft, instead of um, an NBA franchise saying, you know what, we kind of like what we've been seeing from that dude, we understand you're in the middle of your Big Ten schedule right now, but uh, we'd like to call him up to the G League, see what he's got, and see if we can bring him to our active roster two weeks after that. That's never going to happen, but it was just an idea that popped in my mind that would make, uh, yes, for tons more chaos, but this is what happens in hockey and in baseball. It'd be kind of cool if you got it in basketball, but that's something that's obviously not going to happen. Another recommendation was that they now want independent investigations. Um which I think is a no-brainer. Like I don't, I don't really have anything um, too insightful to say about that. It just seems like a perfectly logical thing to do. Like let's not investigate each other. Let's have an in- independent investigator when there are serious um, allegations of rules violations. Like that's that. Yeah, sure. I'll sign off on that. Easy, right? Fairly easy. Although uh, I just felt compelled to tweet about this earlier today as well. So last June. 
um, the NCAA invited a bunch of media out to Indianapolis to talk about the way the sport is covered and, and trying to basically improve relations between the NCAA headquarters and a lot of media outlets just to say, hey, listen, what, what can we do better here? Uh, from the NCAA's standpoint, what can we do to help you guys? And it was a productive conversation, but at one point they had people from the enforcement unit and the Committee on Infractions come in and help lay out s- some more and more stuff, which was very helpful. But at one, I remember specifically them talking about how – how great the peer review model was. And that was the way that the NCAA has always run things. And you can look at the way the peer review model has worked in other industries, and it's it's really the most effective way to do things. And here we are nine months later, and the commission is basically saying, uh-uh, nope, no way, no how. So I have to think that there are a lot of people in the NCAA offices that are rejecting this this proposal by the commission here. And... I don't know if we're going to go to an independent. I think that we should perish. I'm not convinced immediately that that is going to happen. So it makes a lot of sense. But given that there are a lot of people whose jobs are already tied to this and people who have already worked previously in, in, in the federal jurisdiction around this country, I'll be interested to see where that goes. And if we do see that change, let's, let's just wait and see on that. That's all. Another recommendation was they want harsher penalties for level one violations. Um, she even mentioned Condoleezza Rice, um, a five-year postseason ban, um, show cause penalties. Um, I mean, yeah, seriously harsher penalties, which I'm all for. Like, punish these guys as much as you want. But the idea that that it will prevent people from cheating just just isn't so. I mean, they've tried to play this card before. You know, they've been adding rules and punishments for decades and decades and decades. You know, now here we. 2018, there's an ongoing FBI investigation in corruption in the sport of college basketball. You remember when they put in the coach control, you know, uh, a, a, a violation, which basically uh, was the NCAA saying, we are tired of the head coaches playing dumb and the assistant coaches falling on the sword. Like, that's what happens here, there. I mean, that was that was the, you know, the way it just that's the way it worked for decades we're gonna we're gonna rock and roll however we rock and roll get down however we get down we probably won't get caught but if we do the guy making 150,000 is gonna take the fall the head coach making millions is gonna play dumb and then the head coach can you know take care of the, the guy who had to take the fall in in one form or another that's the way college basketball works forever so the NCAA comes in and they say all right enough of that you are responsible as a head coach for the people who work for you. So if your assistant coaches are out there, you know, cutting deals, breaking rules, creating violations, you will be held accountable. You could get a nine-game suspension. Did, this, did, it, did it stop cheating at all? Next thing you know, Hall of Fame coaches are just doing their nine-game suspensions. Like it just like it didn't stop anything. Um, like it, I don't want to say – let me rephrase. I'm not going to say it didn't stop anything. But it – like – that was put into place years ago, and we are in the middle right now of an ongoing FBI investigation into corruption in college basketball. Penalties do not, um, you know, they, 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 they've never shown an ability to actually eliminate cheating in any sort of meaningful way because it's just like everything else in life. There's a risk-reward, and the reward still far outweighs the risk. It just does. I mean, we're talking about if you secure, you know, the example I've always used, let's say you're a coach on the hot seat. 
you got one, you got one more year and if it doesn't go well you know that's you're not gonna you're not gonna continue to keep your multi-million dollar a year job but if you secure a top five recruiting class top 10 recruiting class well that might be enough to convince an ad just to give you one more year because hey you know if we fire the coach now we're going to lose the recruiting class as well and so it's probably going to buy you another year. And then with that recruiting class, you can maybe have a good next year and then you can get a contract extension. So let's say a coach is making $2.5 million a year and he's got one more year guaranteed. He's going to make $2.5 million, but he gets a top 10 recruiting class. So he gets an extra year. So that 2.5 million is actually now 5 million. And then when that recruiting class enrolls, he like has a breakthrough season. They get to the NCAA tournament. So now he gets a contract extension. Gets three more years put on his contract. Now we're up to what? $12.5 million. The reward for cheating still far outweighs the risk. And there's no penalty that the uh, Commission on College Basketball can recommend that's, that's ever going to change that. Yeah, uh, there's two plots here. I mean, the, the reason why we're having this discussion to begin with, Parrish, is is the significant cheating that continued to happen at a high level within college basketball, and that, that's clearly undeniable. Now, I referenced that meeting in Indianapolis with the NCAA last, last June. At that same meetup, they did present data that showed that the very changes they put in some years ago did actually have an impact at the major college level on the number of um, – you know, violations that were uncovered. Now that's, that's uncovered. Like, let's not, let's be real here. I mean, the stuff that was uncovered by the FBI was not uncovered by the NCAA. So who's really to say, but the NCAA would probably rebut your comment by saying, no, actually, if you look at, you know, from 1975 to 2006 or whatever, here's what we had on a per year basis. And since then, when we made these changes, you can see they clearly went down further and further. uh, To that, I, I, I would just say, um, that doesn't prove that the cheating was current. I, it, just, I agree. it just proves you didn't catch as many people. That's all it proves. Yeah, I know. I know. That's totally fair. I'm just uh, providing, I guess, context for both sides of it. Um, but I, I do think, man, I don't know. Judging off of what I've heard some coaches tell me, they, they believe that if you pin this stuff continually on the head coach, even if it's a rogue assistant and it's a five-year ban or a lifetime ban if it's directly attributed to a coach – I think head coaches, at least some of whom I've talked to, and this is at the high high major level, and that's as recently as Archie Miller earlier today, that that is enough that it will scare some guys. Not all, but it will cause some hesitation for some. Um, so I think that that can have some impact, but I don't think it is It is not going to be swiping away everything with the wave of a hand. I don't think that necessarily is the case. I do think it is significantly more aggressive, and it's not a bad um, recommendation overall, uh, you know, lifetime ban is a lifetime ban. Like I, that's, you know, you'd have to have the most kind of egregious kind of cheating to go on. Um, and it is something to consider, but I don't hate it. I, I think that it would have impact maybe a little more than you might think, but, uh, but it's not a cure all. I guess I just bottom line it with this. Um, the college coaches who are wired to cheat are just wired to cheat. I mean, you know, there are there are examples throughout history of coaches who like cheat, get caught, pay a price, and it's basically understood. If you get caught again, you 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 will lose your job, and nobody will ever hire you again. And so you would think to a rationally 
thing uh, to a rational person you go all right well like you just can't do it anymore just can't cheat i mean you can't and they just cheat they you know, just get back to doing right what they were doing you know it's just if you're wired to break the rules you're going to break the rules and i i i can acknowledge that harsher penalties might make you hesitant but ultimately um you know if you're wired to 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 operate in that manner I think you're just wired to operate in that manner. Um, another recommendation, players can engage with agents. Do you have a sense for what that even means? Yeah, my sense for what <laughs> Parish. Uh, my sense for what it means is that if you're a 15 or a 16 year old, and clearly you have been established as an elite level uh, basketball prospect by that age, that you and your family can formally take meetings with agents, decide on representation, and out and out hire an agent uh, to help guide you through the process of being a being a prospect. Whether that's like you're the number one prospect at 15 years old, and son. They're, you're just going to go to the NBA. Like, you're so good at this age. Like, it's just going to happen. Or if you're a top 30 prospect and you think that the NBA is clearly going to be in your future, but it's just going to take you a year or, hey, maybe two years, you can go ahead and start that relationship formally and officially uh, whenever uh, your family deems it appropriate or potentially the NCAA will institute an, an age minimum on that, say 15 years old, 16 years old. Who's to say? Who's to see? Um, what is not clear is the financial element of if a prospect can get paid by such by said agent. I think Parrish and I are both of the belief that that is not going to be the case given uh, the lack of um, inclusion of any sort of payments for players that are uh, that wasn't out there when this release came out here on Wednesday. So we don't think that's going to be part of it now, to which Parrish, I'll let you respond to that in just a second. I already know what you're going to say, and I think a lot of the listeners do as well. But here's the other thing. If you have this in place, um, it's fine, but I think I think from the coach's perspective, they're just going to be like, okay, so now I'm just going to officially be recruiting a player through a third party. Like if I want to get this player, I'm obviously just going to be dealing with the agent then, right? Unless this player has an exceptional pair of parents or an exceptional mother or an exceptional father that really have command over the situation and allow their son uh, to think on their own terms and make their own decisions – I'm probably just going to have to outright be going through this agent. And if that's the case, am I really going to be locked into other situations here where I'm beholden now almost publicly to this agent? Because if I want this kid who's a top 10 prospect in the class of 2021 and then he might have some sort of connection to another kid that's in the in the class of 2022 that's not quite as good. So now I'm going to have to what? really actually recruit this guy and promise this other kid a, a scholarship. That's where unintended consequences can pop up here. And it's why um, I think coaches are in favor of this, but they aren't exactly loving the fact that this might actually wind up being the case. So those are two different issues. It's one is how does this really truly impact the way that coaching staffs recruit players? And I think it is a significant impact. And then number two is, well, it's great that these players can have official representation, which we've all lobbied for. But can they actually make money while doing that, or is it, or is this just going to allow them to maybe try and cheat, or, or even like unwillingly perish? Like, okay, you're not allow, you're not, you're allowing me to have representation, but you're not allowing me to accrue anything with what I'm worth before I actually turn professional. Well, then you're just begging these families to to wind up cheating once, once and once again, right? Of course, I mean it's ridiculous. I mean I'm all for um, more transparent relationships. Um, and like legal relationships between agents and future multimillionaires um, who happen to be young basketball players. 
But unless you're allowing them to be compensated by the agent, you've just got the black market and agents are good. Here's, here's essentially what the, what the uh, Commission on College Basketball is saying. We're going to allow agents to, to have actual relationships with, with basketball players as young as high school. And so really what they're doing is just saying, hey, you, you can go you – know, you, 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 this is now allowed. We no longer frown upon it. Okay, so now agents are – Okay, Marvin Bagley's 15 years old. Well, everybody wants to create a relationship with Marvin Bagley, right? Why wouldn't you? I mean, we knew what Marvin Bagley was going to be since he's 15 years old. Well, how are you going to go about doing that? What are you going to do to make Marvin Bagley more interested in having a relationship with you than this agent or that agent or that agent or that agent? It becomes a recruitment. But you're not allowed to give anything. Well, now what are you doing? You're just doing it under the table. It's it'll it'll just like it it unless you what I'm for is players being allowed to have agents, period. And if an agent wants to front them one hundred fifty thousand dollars or two hundred and fifty thousand dollars or seven million dollars, it does not matter to me. When we see a fourteen year old on America's Got Talent, and we know that that person is worth is going to soon be worth millions and millions of dollars. The first thing we tell them they ought to do is get a financial advisor and get a, an agent, get a manager. And the idea that we prohibit basketball players who are similarly talented and, and, and similarly obviously worth millions and millions of dollars very soon, um, the idea that we prevent them from doing the same thing has just always been asinine to me. And, and so – you know, the issue with agents in college basketball has never been, I heard this agent was talking to this kid a lot. Like the, <laughs> the, the issue is agents are paying kids or people connected to kids or college coaches on campuses connected to kids to, to gather influence over them. And that's not going to stop. It, 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 that will never stop. You know, being a sports agent is a lucrative business. And it's also a competitive business. It's, it's really, as an agent, it's no different than being a basketball coach. You are recruiting these people who have options to go in any number of directions. They can come with you, but they can also reasonably go with somebody else. So how do you get them to come with you? Oftentimes you cheat. You cheat to get them to come with you. And so this doesn't fix that, which means this fixes nothing. It's... Uh... See, this is what's going to be interesting, Parrish, is that the NCAA and uh, the NABC, they're all, go- they're all going to be looking at these issues over the next few months. And, like, this was just the start of it, okay? Very real questions have to be asked and legitimate conversations have to be had in the next coming months because, again, what was proposed today isn't what's going to necessarily change. In the short term and the long term, we don't know. But some of the questions we've broached here, they better damn well be asking these things. And the coaches that are going to be in this room, um, they know so much of what's going on here. I think it's imperative that they that they recognize these kind of things because this agent thing is uh, is just it, – it is something uh, – I mean, I can just see it. I can see this going through, and freaking five years from now, we're talking about two or three significant coaches in the game that lose their job over this kind of crap. And for what? You know, If you're going to do it, go all the way. And the last recommendation I wanted to get into is that uh, the Commission on College Basketball is recommending that the NCAA run grassroots events in July. 
um, which again is 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 their way of saying those evil shoe companies. Like I've said a million times, like Sonny Vaccaro said to me a decade ago, um, you know, who, Sonny being the the so-called godfather of of grassroots basketball. You know, whenever they want the shoe companies out of out of this, they they, they can they they can take us out of it. Just stop taking our money. Stop taking our money. Stop taking our shoes. Stop taking our uniforms. They don't want to do that. So now they're trying to act like, well, the shoe companies are evil. And like there's I, – I, I understand that I mean, it's pretty crystal clear at this point that the shoe companies, at least one of them, uh, was operating in a way that is – I, I was going to say not okay. I actually don't have a problem with it, but it is in violation of NCAA rules and at least according to the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, Southern District of New York, in violation of federal law. But whatever. Um so I, I get that, but just pointing over, like, I don't know what that fixes. Like, what does that, I'll, I'll, ask, I'll just ask you, mm-hmm. what does that fix? I don't know what it fixes. Um, I find it intriguing as hell that the commission has gone to the NCAA and said, you need to invest millions of dollars into doing this now. They aren't outright saying get rid of shoe companies, don't have Peach Jam, don't have the Adidas Gauntlet, don't have all these events in Vegas. Because, by by the way, you're not going to stop the shoe companies from doing that. That's going to still continue to happen. But the commission is saying you should have an operation, perhaps in tandem with USA Basketball and the NBA, where you are holding events, camps in, in the summer and bringing in recruits there. And just as a side note, if that happens, that'll also be really interesting to see how that goes and how many prospects they get versus what the shoe companies already have there. Like, I don't even know how that really is going to work. I don't know if the NCAA can pull it off. There is an allure to USA Basketball, but USA Basketball is only interested in a given year in the top 50 or so prospects. There are 300 now. There's going to be 352 Division one programs next year. There are thousands and thousands of prospects, so many of whom are playing in aux gyms and are being recruited by the low major schools and stuff like that. And so much of what, like, it, it demands so little of our attention, and rightfully so, but yet at the same time, so much of the engine and the wheels of how college basketball works are with the bottom 200 programs, 250 programs there. So... Is the NCAA going to invest in that? Because I don't, I don't see a way that they for sure are able to suddenly flip the scenario in the summer where they are competing and winning over um, top 200 prospects versus the, the, the tournaments that are held by Adidas and Under Armour and Nike, which, by the way, say whatever you want about the shoe companies – the the top line events like the four five six best events are run tremendously well and continue to get better from a stats keeping standpoint to the way that they're just organized in general the amount of money those shoe companies pour into those kinds of events people can slack on AAU all they want some of it's validated some of it actually really isn't and 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 the way that that industry while it has a seedy underbelly with some characters and some teams but not all of them has evolved over the past thirty years I think you ask any coach today that. That was around in 1995 or 1998 and was a head coach then or a prominent assistant coach and say, 
Go back then to today. There were some minor benefits in the way that the system was 25 years ago. But in terms of how the grassroots uh, operation is run overall, it's it's much, much slicker and much more efficiently run now than then. So, Parrish, I've kind of rambled on your question. I, I don't know what the absolute benefit is here. But I do like the fact that the commission said, hey, NCAA, we, we know you tapped us for all this. You need to invest millions in this if you want to have more confidence in the way that your sport is recruited. Whether that will actually be the outcome remains to be seen, but I'd be really intrigued to see it. Here's the way I would assume this goes down. You know, the shoe companies are going to have influence over the people who vote on these things, either directly or indirectly. And they're going to say, you can put on whatever event you want to put on run by the NCAA or USA Basketball, but we're still going to put on our events, and we still want them sanctioned. We want college coaches there. And so I think that the EYBL events and the Adidas events and the Under Armour events will continue to be sanctioned, and then the shoe companies will, will lean on their coaches, you know, that, they, that they're compensating, the programs that they're funding, the players that they are bouncing around the country nonstop and say, hey, if, if given a choice, you're with us. You know, if, it's, if, it's, if the options are go to Peach Jam or go to some NCAA-run event, we need you at Peach Jam. You know, ultimately, um, the shoe companies uh, have so much influence over this stuff that I don't think they're going to get removed from the equation. I, I, can, I can see a scenario – where USA basketball can maybe get the top 15 players in the country to like skip something with their, um, with their grassroots team to come spend a week with USA basketball. That, as already, to, yeah, that already happens. Parish, yeah, that, that already, yeah, that already happens. So like I can see that, but the idea that thousands and thousands of, of division one prospects are suddenly not going to have events to play in in July where coaches can evaluate them. I don't think that's I don't think that's realistic. I don't think it is either. Um, I I'm fascinated to see what happens with this because there is so like if, the the actual operation of doing something like this from the amount of hirings you'd have to make to the amount of money that has to go into these things like an average AAU tournament. I'm talking an average one. I'm not talking Peach Jam. I'm not talking, uh, talking Fab 48. I'm guessing an average uh, 60,000, 70,000 on average. And think about how many there are and how many the NCAA would have to put on. Um, yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I, I, again, that's just another recommendation that might have been vetted out in some conference rooms that sounds decent, but actually putting it into place... I I don't know. It took this long in general for the NCAA to create create guidelines on all this stuff with the shoe companies and all these events and sanctioning all of them. And it really took decades to get it to where it's it's working pretty nicely now, even with all the issues that are created with all this. I, I have to believe that for the NCAA to think that it could get this kind of thing going and really humming and working the way that it thinks it could work it would take minimal a decade. So does it want to do that? And, and can it do that? Because I don't think that it can... Uh, it can do that without the help of um, of the NBA and USA Basketball decisions and discussions that still have to be made. Um, but this is just one of – and I know we're about ready to wrap up here, Parrish. But um, all of these things, uh, I, I just I think that there are, 
are interesting outcomes and unintended consequences for good or bad that can still come from a lot of this stuff. And I just I think that this will be a day we remember going forward a year from now, three years from now, six years from now. Some stuff's going to happen. Other stuff won't. And uh, uh, there is no grand fixing of college basketball. Like we didn't get the answers to what ails all the, the problems with the sport here today. And there's still plenty left to be discovered and uncovered. And that's to say nothing of what still has to come with the FBI investigation overall. Um, I'll close with this. You know, summer basketball gets a bad rap. Um, it's an easy target, and and the reason it gets a bad rap is some some of the reasons I should say are are valid. Um, but I do think the the positives outweigh the negatives because it creates incredible opportunities for for young basketball players all over this country. First off, it allows them to travel the country, and just see different parts of the country it just like that that's a for any teenager i think that's a wonderful experience but it also puts them in the gym with coaches who would otherwise never see them i mean there are countless literally countless stories of players who ended up going to college for free playing college basketball somewhere on scholarship simply because they were at one of these events in july and a coach happened to be in the gym not to see them was watching somebody else but then saw them, and then that created an opportunity. Um, I told the story just a few years ago of Mike Dom, you know, the South Dakota State star. Um, he was playing in an auxiliary gym in Vegas. The coaching staff at South Dakota State at the time were there to watch somebody else. They saw him. Next thing you know, they offered him a scholarship. Next thing you know, he's a conference player of the year. He never even gets in front of those coaches if, um, if not for summer basketball. Every, and so the, to eliminate that, to 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 decide to not sanction these events and 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 in essence, not allow college coaches to go sit in these gyms and watch these players, sometimes intentionally, sometimes accidentally, uh, I just think eliminates too many good opportunities, not to mention it it really handicaps the, the smaller schools. Because, you know, they don't have the same budgets that a Kentucky or a North Carolina has. And so there is a real benefit to them sitting, you know, being in one city for three straight days and seeing literally thousands of kids play basketball. And just to eliminate the opportunity, I think it hurts coaches. I think it hurts players. Um, I think that would be wrong and misguided. And then and and also. I don't really think it solves any of your problems. So what is the point of that? Like you said, it'll be interesting to see uh, how it unfolds. I think I've said everything I need to say. Yeah, we've touched on this. We'll still have plenty more opportunities. I just uh, You'll get more updates on this coming through the summer, I think. Um, it's just a matter of what gets pushed further, what gets tweaked. Um, I'll just wrap it up real quick. You know, I talked with Mike Bray, too. He said, I'm sick of the cynicism. Like this is the start of of some change here, and at least we have you know to paraphrase him at least we have the ball rolling with some of this stuff. Not everything can be changed in six months' time. It might take a couple of years' time. I think there's some validity to that. I don't like this idea that you know the commission didn't come out with everything that we wanted to hear, so this was a gigantic waste of time i I reject that. I still think that there are good things that were put on the table here that will improve college basketball, not to the point of where we wanted it to be, but not everything has to be this just no matter what if we don't like everything we're going to kill the commission we're going to kill the NCAA. in my view that's not really what's happened here there's still plenty of miles to go, 
But some of what Mike Briggs said, which will be in my story, has some validity to it. And just, just keep that in mind. Like, I understand people want to always have the pitchforks out for the NCAA. Again, this was not the NCAA that did this. This was the NCAA that put it into place. But it's still the commission's thoughts. It is an independent assembly of people that thought about all this. So we'll wait and see what happens. I expect more updates on this story this summer. I agree with that. You know, there are some good recommendations here. I think college basketball, with most of these recommendations, is is a better sport. But they didn't fix anything. They improved some things, but they didn't fix anything because the central issue um, is amateurism. The central issue of the FBI investigation is money, and they did nothing to address the money factor in all of this scandal, which means the scandal, uh, the scandal stuff doesn't go away. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry M. F. Antigo. He's the legend. And remember to subscribe to the Ion College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcasts. Please go subscribe. It really does matter. Rate it favorably if you haven't already. Five stars. Nice comments. That's all we ask. And we will talk to you again no later than next week. Till then, take care.